This morning you can meet me in Micah chapter 6 in your physical Bible. The Old Testament book of Micah is about halfway through. You can also find this uh, on the app, um, online, whatever works for you this morning. This is where we will be. It's where we were last week and where we will be next Sunday as well. Micah chapter 6 verse 8. While you're looking that up, I want to begin with this. A couple years ago, Comedian Chris Rock announced that he would no longer be doing his stand-up shows on college campuses. He lamented that today's college kids were too easily offended. And if you can't offend someone, he said, then what is the point of telling jokes? Now this led to the whole, or has contributed in many ways to the whole like millennial snowflake phenomenon and the rise of what is now called cancel culture. Now, I think a lot of times cancel culture is framed as a tool or even a weapon of the left in our country, a way to maybe silence those who hold different views. But I want to make it clear, this is not just a left progressive sort of thing. I'm old enough to remember the church canceling Disney, canceling Teletubbies, canceling various rock bands, you name it. Uh, just a couple weeks ago, John Piper, who's one of the more conservative voices in the evangelical church, spoke at Liberty University, which is one of the largest Christian universities in the country. Very straightforward sort of talk, uh, uh, go get them college kids, use your life to help build the kingdom of God sort of thing. But the very next day, he published an article that made the case for not voting for the re-election of President Trump. And that afternoon, Liberty University immediately wiped all of his chapel teachings off their website. So cancel culture is not a left issue or a right issue. It is a symptom of a deeper human problem, a problem that we all have, whatever our ideological viewpoint may be. It is a symptom of the reality that we are mercy deprived and that deprivation is making us spiritually sick. Now our text this morning again is Micah 6, 8. This one verse that says, He has shown you, O mortal, what is good. And the prophet Micah is saying, this is what God has told us is good. What does the Lord require of us? To act justly to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. If you skip ahead one chapter to Micah 7, verse 18, we read this. Who is a God like you, who pardons sin and forgives the transgression of the remnant of his inheritance? You do not stay angry forever, but delight to show mercy. Who is a God like you, who delights to show mercy? We are mercy deprived and it's making us spiritually sick now back to the big picture for a moment we are continuing on in this conversation that we've been in this fall called counterculture we're exploring questions like what does it mean for us to be the church what what is it about us that is distinct that makes us set apart or different how are we different from the ways of the world as we read in Ephesians chapter 2. Hopefully by now, as we've been making our way through this conversation, it's clear that we are different. We are a counterculture. We are a demonstration of a different way 
to be in this world. We've been using the, the first Christians, the early church, as our example, and we've seen from them, we have a countercultural identity. Uh, underneath all of this is this foundational identity. We are a people who live from a place of resurrection, right? A place of life, not death. We live from this, this place of being loved, affirmed because of who we are, created in the image of God, and we live from a place of unity. So that identity piece is part of what makes us different. That's what we explored in part one of this conversation in Ephesians chapter two. But now we've turned our attention to not just who we are, but then what we do. How do we live that identity? And this is where this text from the prophet Micah is so important for us. We are countercultural in the ways in which we do justice and love mercy and walk humbly with our God, the ways in which we serve and seek God's justice and shalom for this world that he loves and created. So we're going to talk now for a few moments about this second part there. So last week was, what does it look like to act justly? Today, what does it look like to love mercy? Let's talk a little bit more about this word mercy. Now the dictionary definition of mercy is actually quite helpful. Here's what it says. Compassion or forgiveness shown towards someone whom it is within one's power to punish or harm. Let me say that again. Compassion or forgiveness shown towards someone whom it is within one's power. And that word power is very important. Within one's power to punish or harm. Now, a lot of times I've heard mercy defined, especially within the church by Christians, that, that mercy is about not getting what we deserve. And, and there's, you know, this is, we're getting into semantics a little bit here, of course. There's a lot of truth to that statement. But that definition, not getting what we deserve, is a lot more about us than it is about God. And to, to truly grasp this, this concept, this word mercy, we can't think about it merely from our perspective because as that dictionary definition made clear, there's a power dynamic at work here. To be merciful, you must have power. And one of the reasons God's mercy is so breathtaking so incredible, so amazing, is because he is the most powerful being in the universe. The one who spoke creation into reality simply through his word is merciful. What kind of God is this? What kind of God is this that we worship, that we follow? He's a merciful God. Righteous and just, certainly, but also loving and merciful. His justice flows from his loving nature. Throughout the Old Testament, you'll see this repeated refrain, the Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness. We see this in Exodus, in Numbers, a couple times in the Psalms. We see it in prophetic books like Joel, and Jonah, this formulation of God's character, the Lord, the Lord, compassionate, gracious, slow to anger, abounding in love. Last week in, in uh, our conversation around justice, we said that God isn't just a God who cares about justice. He is just. And in the same way, God is 
merciful. These are attributes of his character. Nehemiah chapter 9, In your great mercy you did not put an end to them or abandon them, for you are a gracious and merciful God. Go and learn what this means, Jesus says. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners. And then Ephesians chapter 2, that passage we looked at earlier this fall, because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in transgressions. It is by grace you have been saved. God, who is rich in mercy. Now, a question for us, though, is... How do we reconcile these two things? How do we reconcile justice and mercy? Because on an emotional level, they can feel very different. Justice feels punitive, right? You must pay. And then mercy feels sort of arbitrary, like, oh, never mind, you don't actually have to pay for that. So it can feel like these two things are opposed to one another. And I think that is where we end up when we come at this from a legal or a technical perspective. And so we need to reclaim these words in the relational context that they come to us in Scripture. The relational context of this kingdom of right relationships, not just as sort of uh, uh, dry technical words, but as words that help us name this God that we worship and follow, that that give us perspective on the character of God. Justice and mercy are two sides of the same coin. Two sides of shalom, wholeness, peace, harmony, righteousness, the way that God intended things to be. They go together. We can't separate them or hold them in opposition. Now, stories oftentimes help us understand reality better than the dictionary. Are you with me? (laughs) So what I want you to do now is turn with me to Luke chapter 19 to a story about Jesus and a wee little man. This man's name is Zacchaeus. And we don't know a lot about Zacchaeus, but we know one really important fact about him, and that's that he was a tax collector. Now, in that time and place, that culture, first century Palestine, tax collectors, if the people of Israel ever wanted to cancel someone, it was tax collectors, right? These folks who were in cahoots with the Roman Empire, who ripped off their own people to satisfy their oppressors and to make a few bucks, they were hated. And so here's here's this guy, Zacchaeus, this tax collector, who who just wanted to get a glimpse of of Jesus. And oftentimes, you know, the whole tree thing is, is kind of cute and we make a, a kid's song out of it and we think of this short little guy. I wonder if part of the reason he has to climb this tree is simply because people didn't want to let him in, didn't want to let him to the front of the line. Either way, he climbs this tree and this is where Jesus recognizes him, points him out, calls him out and says, hey, I am coming to your house which is a very big deal in that culture. This is a very intimate thing. This is sort of like, this is a terrible analogy, but this is sort of like giving people the password to your phone, right? Like these are, you're really letting someone in at this point. But it says that Zacchaeus welcomed Jesus into his home gladly. And again, we don't have a lot of details about what happens here. We do know that people are offended by this. 
that there's grumbling and complaining. How could Jesus do this? How could he go eat with that horrible tax collector, that Democrat, that Republican, that Lakers fan, whatever it might be for you? How could he do this? But Jesus spends time with Zacchaeus in his home, in this intimate, personal setting, and it leads Zacchaeus to declare, look, Lord, here and now, here and now, I give half my possessions to the poor, and if I have cheated anybody out of anything, I will pay back four times the amount. Now, don't miss this, all right? Zacchaeus has power. He is a tax collector. He's a representative of the Roman Empire, this massive, uh, massively powerful empire. And Zacchaeus has resources. He could have very easily said, hey, I got dinner with Jesus. I prayed the prayer. We're good here and, and moved on. But he hangs out with Jesus and then he ends up giving half of his stuff away. And not only does he give half of his stuff away, but he then pays back anything he might have cheated from other people with interest. This is what it looks like to love mercy and to act justly. And Jesus says, as he sees this unfold, he says, Today salvation has come to this house. Today shalom has come to this house. This is what the kingdom of right relationships looks like. And I think this story is extremely helpful for us right now in our highly contentious times. How will we love mercy and act justly like Zacchaeus? In Romans 12, we read, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God, this is your true and proper worship. Now listen to the countercultural language here. Do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, and then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, His good, pleasing, and perfect will. So in view of God's mercy, offer your whole self to God in worship. And as you do this, you will be transformed, able to know how am I supposed to act justly and love mercy in the place that I am in right here and right now. We might say it this way, to be countercultural is to experience God's mercy and to respond accordingly. To be countercultural, we experience God's mercy and we respond accordingly. Now, I think there's two questions here, two responses that I want to invite you to consider today. The first is this, have you accepted God's mercy? Right, that little phrase there, in light of his mercy, in view of his mercy. Maybe another way of saying it is this, do you trust God to be merciful? A lot of us carry around a, an image of God that's anything but merciful. We have this inner critic, this soul-level monologue. You're terrible, you're rotten, you mess up all the time, you blow it. We carry this fear of God's condemnation. We may say 
that we believe the opposite of that. Oh yeah, grace, mercy, blah, blah, blah. We love all that stuff, but we live with this cloud, this weight, this constant evaluation that's always going on inside of us. Mercy is the space where you are no longer being evaluated. Too many of us, we've lost the view of God's mercy. If you know me, you know that I love Santa Cruz. And uh, I particularly love the drive to Santa Cruz. I love driving Highway 17. And there's this moment when I'm driving Highway 17 where I'll roll the windows down and just kind of breathe in that beautiful redwood mountain air. And then I get to the point where you kind of crest the hill. And as you do that, you begin to get this, this view, right? You begin to get this glimpse of the ocean. And for me, there's that moment when you get over the hill and you can see it for the first time, the vista, the view of the Pacific Ocean, the, the, the beaches of Santa Cruz, and it's just like, oh, yes, here we are in view of God's mercy. Maybe we need to approach God's mercy like this. This space we arrive at where the view is breathtaking and reorienting and instantly restful, where that evaluative voice gets turned off and we can be held by this merciful and loving God in view of His mercy. Have you accepted the great mercy of God? And the second question or invitation for us is this. Who do you need to extend mercy to? Who do you need to extend mercy to? Is it your kids, your parents, your spouse, that over-annoying or that annoying over-poster on your Facebook feed? Who do you need to extend mercy to? And what about mercy towards groups of people? Are there groups that you have othered? Protesters, conspiracy theorists, people in other theological camps, are there people who you have labeled in such a way? Do you need to extend mercy to them? What does that look like? Back to the, the Zacchaeus story for a moment. What does it mean to pay back four times over those we have cheated, those we have withheld mercy from? See, mercy is not just an emotion that we feel towards someone. It is an action that we take. We are a public demonstration of God's mercy in the way that we treat others, speak about others, sacrifice for others, and use our power to be for others, not against them. Now we come to the point in our gathering where we celebrate this sacred meal called communion together. In this meal, we remember who Jesus is and what he has done on our behalf, his sacrifice on that cross in our place is the most clear demonstration of God's mercy towards us that we have. And so we gather around the table. We, we take this bread and this cup and we, we break it and we eat it and we drink from the cup and we remember that Jesus, again, is the tangible expression of God's justice and mercy. God's justice and mercy with flesh on. But also we remember that we are called, as the church, we are called the body of of Christ. We are God's mercy on display for the world to see. And so as we come to the table today, again, I just want to ask those two questions. Have you received God's mercy? 
And do you need to extend that mercy to someone in your life? I want you to take a moment and consider that question, those two questions, as we sing this last song together. And then when you're ready to take the elements, the body and the blood of Jesus this morning. Let me pray for communion. Heavenly Father, we again and again return to this moment humbled and grateful for the gift of your Son, Jesus. For who He is, for what He has done, for all that that means for us. This uh, deep truth that you are compassionate and full of grace, slow to anger, abounding in love, that you are a merciful God. You delight in extending us mercy. God, thank you for that good news. And so, God, even though we have all these, these, these messages, these voices of criticism, of evaluation going on all the time, we step into this place of mercy where all of that gets shut off and we are reminded that we are your children and that you love us and that you delight again to extend this mercy towards us. And finally, God, we... We also want to be a people individually and collectively who extend that mercy towards others. So like Zacchaeus, would you show us tangible, real ways in which we can extend your mercy to those around us. We pray all of this today in Jesus' name. Amen.